Thank you to Pastor JC for giving me the opportunity to preach. It is always, always an honor. Uh, we're going to continue in our series that we're in right now called Summer on the Mount, which is based on what is said to be one of Jesus' first sermons that he ever preached. He got up on a mountain and just started preaching to people. And it, it spanned over about three chapters, uh, starting in Matthew 5. And uh, what we're doing is we're breaking up this sermon into bite-sized chunks that each of us are going to preach into. And so uh, last week, Pastor Ben, he brought, he brought a word. I don't know if you were here last week, but I got fired up in that movie theater in Germantown listening to that word about being salt and light. And uh, this doesn't take anything away from him. But I'm a little bit salty right now because when we divided up the Sermon on the Mount, I sure would have loved to have got to preach what he preached last week. Uh, he got to tell you that you're salt and that you're light and that you have purpose and that you're valuable. Um, my passage that I'm preaching on today is, is the opposite. And, and you'll see that very clearly. That's what I'm saying. Your applause for me, it's not going to last long. I don't expect very many amens today. You're going to walk out of here with a little bit of a limp. Like it, it is that, but I'm telling you it's for a purpose and it is God's word. And so I'm, I'm excited to get into it. And as I was studying to prepare for this message, I, I saw this pattern that I'll lay out to you in a moment of what the way that Jesus helps us to become righteous. Uh, but when I saw that pattern, I applied it not just to my spiritual growth, but, but also like to my physical growth and my physical health. Uh, if you grew up here or if you've been attending here for, for a couple decades, then you knew me because I grew up in this church since I was three years old. So over 27 years ago, uh, grew up in this church. I was a little rascal running all over these places, and I, uh, I was a little bitty guy. Man, I was so short. I was so skinny, and I always was just so aware of my imperfections, right? I, I knew all of these things wrong with me, and I, I had this complex. And so uh, a couple of years ago, you know, I had this moment where I was just looking in the mirror, and I became very aware of my imperfections, right? It wasn't in this like self-loathing kind of way, but it was me kind of looking and I was just like, you know what, David, you can do better than this. It's not about being better than anyone else, but you can be better than yourself right now. Like, let's go, let's, let's take care of this body that you're given. Let's, let's start eating right, let's start working out. And, and I became aware and I became aware of all of my imperfections. So then I started kind of dating this girl that I met up in Maryland, and I, I wanted to impress her. Today, she's my wife, so the end of the story is worked out well for me, okay? I'm just saying, I didn't do too bad either. Check out her Instagram. All right, so, so I was, uh, you know, so I met this girl. I was like, you know, she's pretty cool. Well, I found out she's a personal trainer and a nutrition coach, and her brother is a personal trainer. And so I was like, well, if I'm going to fix these imperfections that I see in the mirror, I need to learn from them. So I started asking her, I was like, hey, girl, you know what's up? Like, let's go, let's go to the gym, let's work out together. And by the way, that plan backfired. I wanted to impress her. Guys, I'm sorry if this is TMI, but I threw up after 15 minutes. We, we finished the stretches for leg day, and I was in the bathroom. Like, it was, it was over for me. So she felt bad for me, and then she ended up marrying me. That's, that's kind of the way, that's the way that worked out. But I wanted to get instructions from her. And I also wanted to get instructions from her brother because he, he I'm going to be honest, he's just jacked. I mean, he is ripped up. He's goals, right? Like I was like, this is, this is it. So I would ask him, how do I work out? How do I, how do I get in the gym? And, but I didn't just need to know my imperfections. I didn't just need to receive their instructions. I needed, I needed motivation. You know, I needed something to, to get me fired up. And so I started to find that in them, not just from the instructions they gave me, but actually by the way that they lived 
their life. My wife, Esther, uh, one day I, I went over to her house years ago, and I saw her eating a salad without any dressing at all. Like, like the stuff that you would feed a rabbit, okay? Like she was eating that. And I was like, this is, what? Not, no ranch, vinaigrette, anything? A little dash of salt? Nothing. Just spinach, all right, and tomatoes. And I was mind blown. I was like, wow, if you have that much discipline to where you don't even care what you're eating, I'm, I'm actually fired up by that. Like, that's, that's impressive to me. If you can do that, I can stop eating, you know, so much fried food and little Debbie's all the time. Like, I got I to gotta eat like an adult, okay? So, so I saw that, and she inspired me. And then, you know, working out with her brother for the first time, hearing about his commitment, how, how he does intermittent fasting, and, and how many times a day and how many times a week he works out. I was inspired. I was motivated, right? Looking at them, observing them, got me fired up. I needed to look in the mirror and see my, my imperfections. I needed to receive their instructions from someone who knew what they were doing. And I needed inspiration to be able to live it out. And so uh, I'm happy to tell you today, I, I'm, I've come a long way. I'm not where I want to be yet, but I've come a long way. And I just thought I'd show you a little progress pic. It's, it's really no big deal. Uh, there's me right there. I don't know why you're laughing. Okay, thank God for Photoshop, right? That is not... Uh, that's not me, but one day, come on, who's believing with me? One, one day, that could, uh, that could be me. Thank God for Photoshop, right? I, I say that because, one, I, I wanted to bring in some humor because the rest of the sermon, you're probably not going to laugh at all, okay? So get it out of your system now. But, but I say that for another reason because uh, Jesus uses that same pattern of making us aware of our imperfections, of giving us instructions, and living a life that's inspiring he shows us that over these next 20 verses that he gives. So he does, about, for about 20 verses here, he breaks down some, some big sins that we still struggle with to this day. And he walks people through that process. But before he takes them through that process, he gives them an important filter that I want you to see. And we're going to turn in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Check this out. This is Jesus talking. And this is so, so important to be able to, under, to, be able to understand the rest of the sermon. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. No, no, no. I'm not here to tell you the way you live doesn't matter. It matters. But here's what I'm going to do. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I'm going to fulfill them in me. So he literally gives us the end of the sermon right here and lets everything else be observed through that filter, which is, hey, I'm about to tell you a whole lot of ways that you're a really bad person. And then I'm going to give you some instructions how to be a little bit better. But guess what? You're still not going to be able to do it anyways. So I'm just going to do it for you. I'm going to go ahead and fulfill the law for you. He gives us the end of the sermon right here. He gives it to us right here. It's like seeing the end of the movie first, knowing how to watch the rest of it. And so it's a beautiful thing. And then he keeps going here to give us a little more context. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. You know what everything is? That's when heaven comes to earth and wipes away the sin and injustice. That's, that's what still has yet to be accomplished, the only thing. So therefore, verse 19, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So don't do that. But whoever practices these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says this, a shocking statement. You got to put yourself in the perspective of the audience at this time, and I'll give you that context in a second. 
He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness, your goodness, your holiness, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's a shocking statement right there. And what makes it so shocking is there is no other group of people in history that have ever been more obsessed with being righteous and keeping the law than the Pharisees. So for the people listening to that, they were like, I mean, my goodness, these people have devoted their lives to this. How are we going to be better than them? And Jesus throughout, and you got to keep coming back every week because I'm not giving you the whole sermon. I'm just giving you a piece of it. But throughout the whole sermon, he starts to show, no, they adhere to their version of righteousness. That the Pharisees have lowered the bar for what righteousness should look like because they just want to look like they're better than you. They don't care about being honoring to God. They just want to be better than the rest of you. But I'm telling you, if you live your life to be just better than your other neighbor next to you, better than your wife, better than the, the other denomination across the street, if you're living your life that way, that's not real righteousness. So he goes a little bit further, and he says, so, so you need to listen to what I have to say. Don't follow a deluded version. You need real righteousness. You need to really be made righteous. And this sermon that he gives gives us a shockingly, and offensively clear message about how we can be made righteous. And he lays out that same process that I told you about my physical health. He lays out that same process for our spiritual health. Now, I'm a visual guy, okay? So I put together this little, little graphic uh, for you because this is how it kind of fit in my brain. So if you're visual, hopefully, hopefully this is helpful to you. This is what happens, okay? This is the goal. We need to be made righteous, and we got to be more righteous than the Pharisees, okay? So the way that Jesus, he starts to, put, to give us this pattern throughout the next three sections of his teaching, and this is what he does. First, he shocks them with how imperfect they really are, and you're going to see in a second, it's, it's like a hard pill to swallow. They're like, really? I didn't think I was that bad, and he's like, you are. You are that bad. This is the, he makes us aware of our imperfections, but he also gives us the instructions because he says, listen, you're, you're, you're a bad person, okay? But here's how you can be a better person. Here's how you can be righteous. And it was very, very difficult instructions to bear, but people need to know it. You and I need to know it, and we need to follow the instructions. But he doesn't only do that because that and that alone will bring you into this guilt and shame cycle of just feeling bad for yourself every time you mess up. So he said, the only way that you're going to get motivated and empowered and transformed enough to do this, to be made righteous, is if you watch me do it. Be inspired by not just what I say about you, not just what I tell you to do, but by the way that I actually live it out. And so this is the process. I tried to do this for every point, but I can't. So just kind of memorize this diagram because this is what I see. We need all three of these. If we miss even one of these, we will not be made righteous. And so let's, let's jump in to, to how he starts to let this unfold. I'm going to give you three different sections of three different sins that we still commit to this day. Here we go. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry, ever angry, with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which is basically to call them, hey, you're nothing. You're a nobody. 
is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Okay? This is intense. And I, I, I want you to understand, I think that we really try to take away the sharpness of God's word and, and the offensiveness of how Jesus really was to that culture back then. Because he, he said some things that had people like, yo, like, oh, did he really just say that? Listen, the gospel is, is a sword. It's not a pillow, okay? It's not to make you comfortable. And I'm telling you today, if you, if you think my goal in this sermon is to make you happy, you're going to walk out of here thinking I'm the worst preacher ever, okay? But the gospel is not a pillow. It's a sword, and it's going to cut, and it's going to hurt. And I want you to feel the same shock that the people listening to Jesus back then felt when he said this. So here it is. Here's the imperfection. It's a mirror. He's giving you a mirror moment where you can see how imperfect you really are. And this is it. Get ready. All right. We are as hateful as murderers. We are as hateful as a murderer. That is literally what he is saying. Now let me explain to you the context of this by telling you this, this kind of illustration. Let's say that there's a big oak tree and two acorns fall from that oak tree. They come from the same tree, and the acorns are the exact same size. One acorn falls on concrete, and it starts to dissolve and get kicked away, and it, and it dies. But the other acorn falls on to the ground. And eventually, the process works where the tree starts to come up, and it becomes another huge oak tree. Let me ask you this. Did the acorn that became a tree have any more potential than the acorn that fell on the concrete? Okay, the answer is no. Both acorns carried the same amount of potential to become an oak tree. The difference is the acorn that fell in the grass fell into an environment where that acorn could flourish into what it really was. Now here's why I tell you that. You and I and every murderer on death row have the same acorn of sin inside of each of us. And it's really easy for us to look down at the murderer on death row or the abusive person, or the aggressive person. And we can feel a lot better about ourselves by looking at them. But guess what? You got the same acorn in you that they have in them. The difference is, you just so happened to get raised in a house where your parents affirmed you, and they didn't. And you just so happened to be born in a country where you had everything available to you to become a better person. You had people around you teaching you right and wrong. And you didn't get put in the situations that they got put in, that they developed that. Same acorn. You just so happen to fall into an environment that didn't let that take root and grow stronger. But if God, and I hope you can hear me on this, if God is infinitely higher than us, which he is, then the way that you and I measure ourselves against each other, God's like, uh, from this distance, you all look like sin to me, okay? I know you think you're a lot better than that murderer, but guess what? The distance between you and that murderer is like this compared to the distance between you and me. So guess what? You're all guilty. You're as hateful as a murderer. Amen. Let's go eat lunch. <laughs> right? Like, that's, there it is. We're as hateful as a murderer. The same hate that causes someone to kill is the same hate that you and I carry when we cuss out the cashier for not taking our coupons. Right? Like, that's frustrating. You worked hard for those coupons. You cut them all week. You had to find a newspaper. I don't even know where newspapers are anymore, but you found it. And they didn't take your coupons, and now you're angry. 
or you're scrolling through Facebook and you see someone post that thing that you just disagree with and you transform from an accountant into a keyboard warrior in that moment and you're going to let them know just how bad and how wrong they really are and that hate, it's just exploding through your fingertips and you're just like, oh, take that and you hit send and they don't even care, right? But, but you, felt, you felt better. You let the hate just take over. That same hate is the same hate that leads people to kill and to hurt and to abuse. And Jesus wants you to be aware, hey, you're no better, okay? I see you the exact same way. You're a sinner. And so he says, here's what you need to do about it. He said, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and first, this is important, sequence matters to God. Okay, that's why he says, give him your first fruits of your giving, because what you do first matters more to him than what you do with the rest. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and receive or and offer your gift. You know what he's saying right here? He is saying that he would rather you get along with the people around you and love one another before you even offer your worship to him, before you even offer your sacrifice to him. That it is more important to him. And that, and listen, I'm going to say something, and you're going to think I'm wrong, and then I'm going to send you back to Scripture, and you're going to be like, oh, yeah, maybe he was right. Because this is what he's saying. He is saying that I would rather you get along with this than anything. And in fact, if you don't do this part, if you have hatred or grudges towards other people, when you come in here and start singing about how good I am, guess what? I'm not listening. I'm not going to listen. Because you sing about how great I am, but you don't even get along with the people around you. You don't even like people. And I was willing to die for them? No, no. Don't even, I'm not even listening to your prayer until you first go and fix it. Make it better. Pay the penalty for it. I don't care. Do whatever you got to do. But if you reject other people, I'm going to reject you. And if you don't believe me, Go read Isaiah chapter 59. I bet you never thought God would say something like this. He said, when you offer your sacrifices to me, I don't even pay attention. When you send up your prayers to me, I'm not even listening. I don't, I don't even want it. Because you are promoting injustice. You have no compassion on the poor and the widow. You are slanderers. You say evil things. You're wicked people. I, I don't want to hear it. Because you're the same hands that you're lifting in that sanctuary are the same hands that you were shaking a fist at that person who cut you off in traffic. And the same tongue that's singing my praises is the same tongue that's making someone feel bad about themselves. It's the same thing. I don't want anything to do with it. So here's, here's the instruction. The instruction is this. Restore relationships with other people to escape rejection from God. That's what he's saying. Listen, God is not impressed with worshipers who have no compassion for other people. I, 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 there's no way, and he proves that. If he, if he did, then he would have loved the Pharisees because they did not have compassion on the people. He said, listen, if you want to impress me, show love to people. Look at, read James chapter 1, the very last verse, where he says, you, wanna, you know what perfect religion is? Care for the orphan and the widow. Then you'll be perfect. He said, when you do that, then come see me about that, that sacrifice you want to give. Then bring me your prayer. Then bring me your worship. So that's what he's saying. Restore relationships or escape rejection. Now, we have an advantage when we hear this sermon that the people back then did not. They didn't have a chance yet to see Jesus actually live this out. But we do. And he lived it out in a powerful way. And he turned this instruction on its head against himself. Here's what happened. 
He said, restore relationships to escape rejection from God. And this is the inspiration that he gave us. He restored relationships by receiving relationship or by receiving rejection from God. In other words, let me say it to you like this. On the cross, when Jesus yells out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you understand that the punishment for your sins was not just a few nails and a few whips and a few crown of thorns? Your sin was so much deeper than that. Your sin was so deep that he had to face rejection from God himself. You don't deserve a slap on the wrist. You don't deserve, you deserve to be there absent from God, experiencing eternity in hell in one moment. And that's what he faced. He told us, restore your relationships or be rejected. And then God told him, listen, in order to restore the relationship with them, I've got to reject you. I have to reject you. I have to deny your plea for that cup to pass from you. I I have to leave you on that cross, and I have to turn my back on you so that the penalty can be paid. Jesus flipped the instruction against himself. So, yeah, he made you feel bad, but guess what? He also did it for you. He fulfilled it for you. And if you don't understand this, and if you don't stare at this more than you stare at all the rules and all the restrictions to religion, if you don't stare at this, you will never be transformed. You will never be made righteous because you will only be obsessed with rules. You won't be obsessed with him. He doesn't want you to fall in love with the rules. He wants you to fall in love with him so much that he died for you. Can we make some noise for a God that would do that? So he keeps going. And he says, okay, maybe you're not ever angry. So maybe that one's not for you. But I bet this one is. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, saying this to men back then, they were probably like, man, that is is difficult. That's very difficult to do. But how much more so today? You can't even walk outside or drive by with, uh, seeing a billboard or have pop-up ads on your screen or, or browse through the internet without being just bombarded by imagery that promotes lust and the degradation of women. And I'm telling you, it is, it's toxic. It's even more difficult for us today to keep this. But guess what? We're just as guilty if we break it because there's something in us, right? This is what he says. Here's the mirror moment. He says, look in the mirror. You think that it's only about physical adultery that makes you an unfaithful adulterer. But I'm telling you this. We are as unfaithful as adulterers. We have the same unfaithfulness in us when we look twice at that girl at the gym. Right? When you're scrolling on that screen, nobody's around. When you're on the computer, come on, those things you're looking at, that, that is adultery. That is unfaithful. If you're married then we definitely should not be doing that. But even if you're not, it has consequences on a marriage. And I'm telling you today, you might feel safe breaking this one because no one might know. They're going to see when you're angry and you fly off the handle. They're going to know when you lie at some point. But, but some people might not ever know. You can hide behind it all you want to. But I'm telling you right now, there's not only punishment after this life. There's punishment right here. And there is consequences right here for living this lifestyle of being lustful after people. Here's what I mean by that. When you lust after people and look at these lustful images over and over again, I was doing 
so much research, and I was going to put it on the screen, but then I was like, I don't think you're going to care as much as me. So, so I spared you from that. But I was doing all this research, and I even went on the NIH website about studies where when you look at lustful images and, and you lust after people constantly, your brain physically starts to change. It starts to evolve over and over the more you do it. And what it'll start to do is it will change the way you see your spouse. It'll change the way you see your future spouse if you're single right? A real woman won't be enough. One woman won't be enough. It starts to change the way that you see things. And not only does it change the way you see the person you're supposed to be committed to forever, the person you're supposed to be faithful to, but it also feeds an extremely unhealthy appetite, the appetite of self-gratification. Let me tell you what, I've only been married for about two years now, so I'm not an expert like all of you, okay? But what I will say is this, Self-gratification, you got to let that go if you want a happy marriage. <laughs> I told someone the other day, you know, I used to love making sure people knew that I was right. And then I got married, and I realized I am never right. Even when I know that I'm right, I'm not right. And I can either be happy or I can be right, okay? And, and that's how it is. But it's the same thing with self-gratification. You've got to deny that appetite or it is going to grow and you're going to make your marriage or all of your friendships or about your entire life. It's going to be all about you and your appetite is actually eating you alive and it's changing you. You're as unfaithful as an adulterer. This is hard preaching. It's hard to look at this. So what do we do about this? Maybe, maybe God's word will give us some nice easy solution to this. Let's see if we get an easy solution. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Well, all right, okay? It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Okay, Jesus, that, is there, what about plan B, okay? He's like, okay, you want, you want some more advice? Here you go. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body go into hell. Okay, so I'm trying to like put myself in the mindset of the people listening to this Sermon on the Mount, and I feel like there was like nervous laughter going on at this point. They were like, look at this guy, he's such a kidder, cut your hand off, right? Gouge your eye, and then they look back at Jesus, and he's like, no, I'm serious. No, I'm dead serious. Like, you are going to die if you keep doing this. So just get rid of it. Get rid of it. And, he, and this is the instruction, this is, a, I'm sorry, this is the instruction that he gives. He says, listen, you are as unfaithful as an adulterer, and therefore, you've got to cut off that source of unfaithfulness in order to escape destruction. It's your only way out. Whatever's making you unfaithful, you got to get rid of it. you got to cut it off. you got to throw it away. And I don't know about you, but I'd be walking around blind and handless and legless and anything. I would be withered away to nothing. What if this was the only advice we got? What if, what if we didn't get the advantage? What if we didn't have the advantage now that they didn't have then? They didn't get to see Jesus live this out. So for them, this feels hopeless. This feels like, oh, man, I don't know. I, I don't know how I, I could never do this. But remember, Jesus promised to fulfill the law, and he did so in an inspirational and powerful way. So this is what he did. Jesus embraced destruction because of his faithfulness to us. He told the crowd, cut off your unfaithfulness and be saved. And then God told him, you'll be cut off because of your faithfulness to them. If you stay faithful to them, I'm going to cut you off. 
And he told us the same instruction that he gave us. He flipped it against himself and lived it out and paid the penalty for us. He did this for us. You don't have to cut your hand off. You don't have to gouge your eyes out because he did it for you. He lived it out. And if you stare at this long enough, you start to be inspired enough to not want those things anymore and to not look twice when that girl is walking by. I'm telling you, when, when I go to the gym, man, I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to have a daughter. Let me just tell you that. I hope one day, I hope I only have boys because I would never let my daughter leave the house wearing some of these things that I have seen at the gym. And when I see it, I literally, I just, I, I do this and I'll, I work out with my wife too. But I just walk away. I'm like, no, no, not today. Because I know if I look too long, I don't want to go down that road. And Jesus says, listen, I went down that road. And I bore the penalty for it. There's a story in the Old Testament about a prophet named Hosea. And Hosea had uh, a really, really difficult assignment. God comes to him and he says, Hosea, I want you to get married. And that's a cool assignment. I'm so glad God told me that, to, God, to, to get married, because that's, that's been a blessing. But he says, Hosea's like, okay, who do you want me to marry? And God says, I want you to marry Gomer. And he's like, Gomer? You trying, you trying to tell me to marry Gomer? See, here's the thing about Gomer. Gomer was a promiscuous woman. Gomer had a reputation. Gomer, Gomer was, you know what, okay? <laughs> I don't have to go there, right? There's kids in you or something. So, so he gets this assignment, and, and he does it. He, he, marries, he marries Gomer, and then God says, I want you to have kids with her. So he has kids with her. He has children with her. And exactly what Hosea feared would happen, happened. She left him. She cheated on him over and over and over again. And so then, and there's a powerful point. Go read Hosea. I'm giving you a lot of homework today. Go read Hosea chapter 1. It is, it is a beautiful moment when God says, hey, I know, that, I know that she hurt you really bad. She was unfaithful to you. She cheated on you. But guess what? I want you to go to her. I want you to take her back. And this was a powerful verse. You'll read it when you go through it. He said, I want you to love her the way that I have loved the nation of Israel that has turned their backs on me over and over and over again. I want you to feel it, Hosea. I want you to feel how painful it is to love someone and to be faithful to someone that is unfaithful to you. Listen, church, man, I feel the Lord in this room. We are the unfaithful bride of Christ. Every time we choose anything other than his word, other than him, we commit adultery to him. We are adulterers. We are unfaithful. Do you understand how costly it is for Jesus to show the faithfulness to us that he showed? The price that he had to pay to be faithful to us? We are that unfaithful spouse. He embraced destruction because of his faithfulness to us. One more section here. I know you're getting restless. One more section here. He goes into another sin. Again, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear on oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black unless you pull for an Atlanta sports team, in which case your hair will turn gray as you watch the Hawks come so close. Oh, gosh, Lord, help us. Then he says this. All you need to say is simply yes or no. 
anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Okay, so let me, what's going on here, right? I, I got to tell you this, give you a little bit of historical context. Here's what was happening. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they were sneaky, all right? And they knew how to find the loopholes in every little law that they possibly could. So what they did was the way that they punished breaking an oath was based on the severity of your vow, okay? So here's what I mean by that. If someone wanted someone to really trust them and they say, I swear by heaven and earth that I will complete this, well, that's a big promise, and if you break that, it comes with a really, really big punishment. You die, okay? So they said, listen, if you make a big promise, if you, if you swear by heaven and earth, that's something big. But if you just swear by, like, one of your possessions, it's not that big of a deal. So you lose that possession, but, but you keep moving forward, right? So they, they try to create this little hierarchy of, well, that, that's a big lie, but this one is, is not so bad. And what Jesus is saying right here, and I want you to hear this, what Jesus is saying is, hey, that's not, that's not the way it is. Uh, God made us in his image. You carry the image of God wherever you go. And here's what that means. You don't need to make any oaths because you and I are under oath right now. Because you carry his image. You are on, you are on the witness stand. Your hand is on the Bible right now, and every breath that you breathe, you are under oath because you carry the image of God. You represent God to the earth. You're under oath right now. And if you lie, you break an oath to God. That should intimidate us just a little bit. Here is his imperfection of humanity that he, that he shows us. He holds up the mirror, and he says, we are as deceitful as evil people. We are, oh, we're so deceitful, and we love, it's like one of our hobbies in America today, no matter who you vote for, we love bashing politicians, and, and I'll be honest, they bring it on themselves, okay, like, come on, somebody can help me out here, like, they, they do it to themselves, uh, doesn't make it okay, but we love ripping them apart for their deceitfulness, and their evil, and how could they do this, but based on what Jesus is saying, the same thing that leads them to manipulate nations, you use to manipulate other people. Your boss, your coworkers, your friends, your family, anybody. You have something that you're really, really good at. And you know how I know this? Because I'm good at it too. You can contort the truth and paint this beautiful picture to make people believe this false reality about you. You could make anyone believe that you are the victim, right? You can make anyone believe something that's not true in order to advance your agenda, right? You don't want to be uncomfortable. You don't want to feel awkward. You don't want to make them feel bad. You don't want to do this. So you lie, but you paint it in such a way, oh, you're so good at it, right? You can do it in such a way that seems perfectly harmless. And Jesus is saying, not so fast. That is not the way that I made it. Listen, advancing your agenda through sowing these little webs and designs of deceit, that's not only what politicians do. Someone else does that too. Let me show you. I'll back up. The evil one. He does the exact same thing. What did he do in the garden? He gave Adam and Eve just enough false truth to where they could latch onto it and make it believable. 
See, some of us, we, we're, the enemy's got us under a spell because we, don't, we think that the devil's going to come by and it's just going to be so obvious when, when there's a lie and something that's so obvious when it's wrong. But that's not the way that he works. He knows how to spin a story and contort the word of God to make you believe something that's not true and that will lead you to destruction. And we have that same thing in us today. We have the same agenda. We want people to fall for our worldview so we can twist the truth all we want to. And here's, here's ways that we do it. We read things in the Bible that say, don't do this. Black and white, clear as day, right, wrong. And this is what we do. We say, I mean, well, technically, if you read it in the Greek and you translate it like this, you can do blah. And I, and I am just, I'm sick of it. Context matters. And you need to read the Bible with context. But right is right and wrong is wrong. And God's word does not need to be changed or edited or fit to your worldview. You adopt your worldview to it, to him. But we have this in us. It could get us to the same thing that led to his inevitable destruction that's coming when Jesus returns. But you could be a part of that destruction if you don't nip it in the bud right now. And so then this is what Jesus says. He says, you're as deceitful as evil people. And so here's my instruction to you. Always tell the truth. Always. Like forever. In every circumstance ever. You're under oath. You have to be honest all the time in order to escape the punishment of breaking an oath to God. Listen, we're under oath. And this is not easy advice, but it's simple. It's simple. It's never lie, ever. And if you have lied, guess what? We're as deceitful as any evil person that's ever lived. So by now, you've seen the pattern, right? You see how imperfect we are. You see the way that he instructs us. And so you know what's gonna happen next. Jesus is going to turn this against himself to pay the penalty because we can't live up to this. So this is what he does. He says, always tell the truth to escape punishment of breaking an oath to God. And then this is the way he lived. He didn't just say he's gonna tell the truth. He said, no, I'll be the truth who faced ultimate punishment by keeping his oath to God. He said, you need to tell the truth, but I'm gonna be the truth. He said, you'll escape punishment if you tell the truth, but I'm gonna face punishment by being the truth. I'll never break my oath, but you're gonna break it all the time. Not only that, but what led to his punishment on the cross, you wanna talk about deceitful and unjust. The trial that led to his punishment was illegal. It wasn't supposed to happen that way. I don't have to go into a lot of context, but that trial was not supposed to happen at night. They were trying to squeeze in that trial before the Sabbath day. Sneaky, sneaky, contort the rules to fit their agenda. He had false witnesses appear saying things about him that never happened or telling a false version of what actually did happen. I'm telling you, it got used against him. Our lies put him on the cross because he is the truth. Darkness hates the light. Darkness hates it. And darkness that day tried to drive out truth, but it didn't work because he rose again. So this is, this is where we're at. We know, we've looked in the mirror. This is not a feel-good message, and that wasn't even my goal today. Although you've been pretty engaged. Way to go. You did better than the first gathering. You can feel good about that. We see the mirror. We say, you know what? I'm missing it. But God gives us these instructions to help us get through it, and then he inspires us enough to get us to that transformation. And this is what I want you to see, and I want you to understand. 
Jesus didn't come to earth just to preach a sermon. He didn't just preach a sermon on the mount. He is the sermon on the mount. See, he got up on a mountain and preached to people about the way that they should live. And then he went up to a Mount Calvary on the cross and he became the sermon on the mount. He said, I'm fulfilling it right now. And when he breathed his last breath, he said, it is finished. It's fulfilled. I did it for you. It's over. And I'm giving you my righteousness because of it. He's a good God. He is such a good God. He is the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to tell you five quick notes, and I'm going to end on time, and I'm going to brag to Pastor JC because I feel so good that I ended on time. Jesus is the sermon. And the first thing you got to understand is this. He raised the standard, and then he deepened the grace. He didn't make the rules go away. He made them more difficult. But this is what he did. He said, listen, the standard's not here anymore. That's too easy. And that's not even what God called us to. God called us to this. But guess what? You can't get here, but I can. So everything in the middle, it's going to be grace. When I was a teenager, this, this song came out, and in the bridge, it said, if his grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. And can you imagine how many sins you have that you've been forgiven of? You would drown in it. But guess what? God says, listen, you're here. My righteousness is here. But my grace is going to come in like an ocean. And if you grab on to this Jesus life vest, you will float all the way up to the top. And you will be as righteous as Jesus was in the eyes of God. As righteous as Jesus is in the eyes of God. Not because you earned it, but because of the grace that he gave us. Raised the standard. Deepened the grace. The second thing he did. He revealed our imperfections. Pretty boldly. Pretty offensively. Right? His sermon hurt. It, 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 it pierces a little bit, gets us a little uncomfortable. Armpits start sweating when we hear these things, right? He revealed our imperfections, and then he paid the penalty for them. He said, look how bad you are. Look how, look how evil you really are. And if he would have just left it there, he would have been like any other religion that says, this is how bad you are, now fix it yourself. But he said, listen, this is how bad you are, and this is the penalty you deserve, and guess what? That's on me. I'm going to pay it. You deserve to pay it but I'm gonna pay it for you. Now live differently. Now go and sin no more. I'm paying it. I don't condemn you. I'm freeing you from it. But you gotta recognize this. You are imperfect. And the world would love to tell you, now let me talk to the skeptics out there or to the straight up non-believers that might be tuning in online or you're sitting in here hoping that no one finds out that you're not sure if you believe in God anymore. Listen, I gotta tell you one lie. I need to expose one lie that the world is telling you right now. The world is telling you that you're a good person that just makes mistakes every now and then. Can I tell you this? In all love and all sincerity, neither you or me is a good person. We are not good people. You're not a good person. I'm sorry. You're not. Even, even if you take away God's standards, you don't even live up to your own standards. You say it's good to treat people with kindness, but you don't always treat people with kindness. You say it's good to follow the, the rules that are listed, but you speed all the time. You say it's good to be nice to people, but you're, you're rude when things don't go your way. You don't even live up to your own rules. So you need to at least, at least admit that. You're not a good person. Come on. We're not good people. We're messed up. Look in the mirror. Look at the imperfections. But don't stay there because the penalty has been paid for it. So this is what I'm saying by that. You are more flawed than you ever dared believe. But you are more loved than you have ever dared hope. The gospel does both. You need that correction. I told my Germantown campus family this last week, uh, if you've ever had a sports injury where you roll your ankle or something like that, it, you walk with a limp, right? 
So here's what sin does. It makes us walk with a limp. But each Christian walks with a limp on a different leg. See, there are some Christians that limp because they are not willing to admit that they're imperfect. So, so the reason they walk with a limp and the reason they don't lift their hands during worship is because they don't think they've been forgiven of all that much, right? If God only forgive, if God's death on the cross only paid for just, you know, you get a little angry sometimes, then of course you're not going to lift your hands. So you've got to see how imperfect you are in order to fix that limp. But then there's other Christians that you've grown up and you, you just feel like the penalty is yours and you, you're so aware of your sin that you feel bad all the time and you can't stop thinking about how bad you are. You need to see this. He paid the penalty. It's paid for. You don't have to pay it anymore. It'll fix that limp. Walk with confidence. Approach the throne room boldly because of what he did for you. Thank you, Jesus. Number three, he issued difficult instructions and then he fulfilled them. He said, listen, you'll never... Here's the instructions. This is what it takes. You'll never do it. You'll either be too scared or too incapable. You, you can't do it. You, you will not keep this perfectly. So, so I'm going to fulfill it on your behalf. Again, he, it's not about us. It is all about Jesus. He is the sermon. He didn't just come to give good advice. He came to give good news. And there is a huge difference. Instructions is good advice. But you can choose whether or not you want to follow the instructions. But guess what? News is news. Whether you disagree with it or not, it happened. And the gospel doesn't just say, hey, if you do this, it might work for your life. You might be a happier person. You might even get to heaven. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not good advice. The gospel is, this is the news. It's paid. It's over. It's fulfilled. He did it. Thank you, Jesus. Number four, he lived an inspirational life to be our example. He said, listen, watch me do this. Watch me live this way. I'll show you what to do when you're in a face. He had a, a woman caught in the act of adultery right in front of him. That means she was in a vulnerable position, unclothed for the world to see. But not for one second did he let his eyes or his mind slip. He stayed focused to the mission. He didn't commit adultery with his eyes. He never got angry to the point of sin. He never told a lie. He lived it out perfectly. He is the example of how to do it. But guess what? If I stop this sermon right here and I don't give you this last point, you're going to leave here pretty discouraged because you're going to think, wow, if Jesus is my example, I can't live that way. Like, I can't be as good as him. He's better than me in every way. But guess what? He didn't only come to be your example. He died the death we should have died to be our substitute. Jesus is not just your example. He is your substitute. You add no value to the kingdom of heaven, but with your surrender and your acceptance of his grace, of his life and death on the cross, all you have to do is give up. He is your substitute. That is the gospel. His death instead of yours. That right there can change a heart. When you realize he lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died. So my question to you is this, have you embraced him? Even if you've grown up in church, is this, is this the gospel to you? Or do you still think it's all about how good you are, how much work you do? This is the gospel. And I wanna give you a chance today to embrace the gospel, maybe for the first time, maybe as a recommitment. Every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking around. If you're in here today and you would say, you know what, that's for me. I need a fresh start. I need to embrace what God did for me. 
I'm aware of my imperfections. I receive his instructions. I'm inspired by his life and I'm made righteous because of his sacrifice. If that's you today and you want to give your life to Christ, no one's looking but me. Raise your hand in this place right now. Come on, today is the day. I see your hands. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Come on, anybody else? Eight. I see eight hands. Thank you, Jesus. You can put your hands down. Now, I want everyone in this room to talk to God right now, whether it's for the first time or you've been in a relationship with him for years. Let's get back to the gospel in this moment. Lord, we approach you confidently, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done. We're aware that we're not perfect. God, we're aware that we're sinners in need of a savior. And we acknowledge that today, God. And we believe that you paid the penalty for us, that you are who you say you are, and you can do what you said you can do. And we accept that today. And Lord, we commit our life today, not to just try to get out of the penalty of sin, but to flee from sin itself. Give us a fresh start. Make us a new creation. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Can we make some noise for Jesus Christ?